Welcome to the City Life Podcast. I'm Tim Woody, the pastor of City Life Church in downtown Fort Worth. There is purpose for your life. There's a destiny you have yet to walk into, and there is hope regardless of what you're facing today. I encourage you to open your heart now to what God will be speaking to you over these next few minutes. So I need for you to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 8. That should be no surprise because over the next, I'm in a series right now and over the next few weeks I'm going to be preaching from Romans 8. I encourage you to keep reading it, read it through, read it again and again, slowly and dissect it and just dig into it. And I hope like you, you hope like, hope you'll do like what I've been doing. I'm just wrestling with the scriptures that are there. So there's a location, Romans 8, 8, 1, and then we're also going to look at Romans 8, verse 12. And you'll just probably want to keep your Bible open in Romans 8 because I'll point out a few other things today. Hey, while you're finding that, just to let you know, we have a men's breakfast coming up here in just a few weeks. A men's breakfast is going to be on Saturday the 19th at 9 a.m. It's on the app now, and you can go at men, you can go ahead and get your tickets. We need you to get the tickets so we'll know how much food to prepare. And it's going to be, we'll have a lot of fun. It'll definitely be, be definitely be a manly breakfast, which means, guys, we won't have little doilies and quiche on a doily. No, that, that will not do. Ladies, if you want to get together and put quiche on a doily, you do that all you want. But this is going to be a full-blown men's breakfast. I have a word from God that I want to share with you at this breakfast, and it's about unlocking your potential as a man. And so that's Saturday the 19th at 9 a.m. Go ahead and start getting your tickets for that now. It's coming up in three weeks. And, uh, and also, we need a few men, I need a few men who are willing to help come up just a, few, a little bit earlier and to help prepare the food, prepare the meals. The food is always good. I, it is my favorite food event that we do is a, is a men's breakfast. But I need a few other men who are willing to do that. And if so, they're putting up this magic number on the screen. It's a text number. Text me right now. Leave that up there for a few minutes. Text me, men, if you are, if you are willing just to come up and hang out with some other guys and just, just, just do it. You don't have to be super chef, but if you're just willing to come up here and help out a little bit, it would be really, really appreciated. So while you guys are all texting me saying, I'm in or whatever you want to say, I'm, I want to I help with breakfast, go ahead and do that. Hey, today in my message, I'm going to do a little play on words. And I'm going to do this to convince you of this one thing, which I started off the service with it, but it is God is for you. God is for you. Before this, uh, this nation, America, before we actually were a nation, four-fifths of the colonists had heard a man by the name of George Whitfield preach. Can you imagine? He didn't preach in churches very often. He usually preached in fairgrounds or town squares or fields. But when George Whitfield preached, entire towns would close up shop to hear what he was saying and to go and, and pursue this. And, and, and it's, it's said that whether he was preaching, sometimes he'd start preaching at the crack of dawn, other times he'd be preaching at midnight, it didn't matter when. People would get up early to hear him preach, or they would stay up late to hear him preach. And, and he didn't have any of the stuff we had. He had no musicians, he had no audio systems, he had none of the cool stuff that we, uh, that we have, but he, it, he would sometimes preach to crowds up to, get this, 10,000. 
5,000 people. And he would do this by projecting his voice. They said that his voice could carry a country mile. And that must have been an amazing voice. Uh, George Whitfield, he made seven trips to the colonies from, from England where, he, where his home was. And he, was, he sailed back and forth across the Atlantic. Uh, according to the stats, he spent 782 days at sea, which is a long, long time. That's about two years. But in, in total, by the end of his ministry, he preached 18 thousand times during his 34 years of preaching ministry. And I think that's amazing. That's, that's actually about, oh, that's actually averages out to about 500 times a year. Uh, so George Whitfield, he was what I would call the icon of the great awakening that happened in the United States, actually during the colonies. And it was, it was America's first great awakening. It was a huge spiritual revival that swept our land. Then I know there were a lot of other people that were very instrumental in the, uh, the first great awakening, but George, he was the jefe. I mean, he was the king. He was the five-star general of this powerful move of God. And he even uh, built orphanages with his own money. And he had a huge heart for slaves. He, he built the very first orphanage for black children in, in, the, in the colonies. And he's also credited, he is, he is credited as being the man who introduced the Christian faith to the slaves that were in the colonies. And I didn't even know that until I was doing this particular study for today. But by the end of his preaching ministry, it's said that he had preached to over 10 million people in Britain and in the colonies. So, what drew the crowds? That's a question I'd like to ask. I, you know, I, I'm a preacher as well. I wonder, what drew the crowds? Well, it wasn't his good looks. I mean, t t take a look at the guy. Uh, the surviving portraits of George Whitfield do not reflect a naturally handsome man at all. Even with his fluffy powder wig, uh -uh, it, just, it just wasn't there. Uh, George Whitfield was, was cross-eyed and, and making eye contact with, with, uh, with other people. and It was a very awkward experience. Yet, what I love about George Whitfield is he didn't let any of this stuff hold him down. I just want to pause for a second. There's a lot of stuff about you've got to look a certain way. You have to have a certain style. You have to dress a certain way if you're going to be a preacher. And I tell you what, I, I, I actually do not value any of that. Uh, that's, that's not in my heart at all. Uh, and I look at George Whitfield, and he's wearing a little fancy uh, gown there. I don't know what that is, but I, ha I seriously doubt he wore that all the time. That was for a special painting that was right there. But... but uh, what caused him to have this kind of effect? What drove him? What drew the crowds? Well, it's said that the preachers at that time would, were basically just sharing these dry essays from the pulpit. But, but when Whitfield preached, uh, he preached like a lion. I guess you could say in today's terminology, he preached like a cage fighter. He was just all after it. In fact, he was extremely dramatic. He would even do these little dramas just all by himself, showing how the Word of God and making it practical. In fact, he had a nickname, and his nickname was Thunder and Lightning. I like that. But from my research, uh, I found that there was a defining moment in the life of George Whitfield. There was this defining decision he had made as a clergyman. And, I, and this is what I would call his as-if moment. 
So I've entitled today's sermon, As If. And it's part of my series on uh, moving from regrets to possibilities, which is my challenge for you today. Let me tell you what happened in this as if issue. Uh, it was the year 1675, and the, Arch, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury was acquainted with this, this actor. This actor's name was Bert, uh, Butterton. And the Archbishop said to this actor, Butterton, he said, he said this. He said, tell me, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregations with the speaking of things imaginary as if they were real? While we in the church speak of things that are real, which our congregations receive as if they were imaginary. Wow, good question. The actor replied, and he said, well, the reason is very plain. It's very simple. We actors, he says, we actors speak of things imaginary as if they were real. But you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. That's the problem. And so this exchange and this, this dialogue of what ifs or as ifs, it hit Whitfield just right between the eyes and it, and it made him shout and there's this, there's this declaration that he made that's very clear. He says, therefore, therefore, I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. Therefore, because of those as ifs, therefore, I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. And, and so this, therefore, that became his manifesto. Uh, it became his God-given passion. It was his God-given dream just to break out of that box. Now, I want to say this. Your God-given passion and your God-ordained dream defines who you are and who you are not. And that's important. It's your defining moment. It's, it's your driving motivation. It's your why behind the what. It's, your, it's, it's what you will be willing to go to your grave fighting for, and I hope you have that. So the question that I want to ask you today is, what is your therefore? What is it? It's, it's impossible to determine uh, when and where and how your therefore is going to be revealed, or maybe it has been revealed to you. But it will likely be kind of like Whitfield as an as-if moment. For me, I experienced this after a special service when I was in college during Spiritual Saturation Week at Southwestern Assemblies of God University in, in Waxahachie, just right down the road back in 1985. I was about 20 years old. And, 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 and just, just so that you understand, most of you would have no understanding of what life is like uh, with, uh, when, you're, when you're on campus with a bunch of ministry students. But students who are preparing for ministry they're, they're, they're an interesting breed. I'll just, just put it out that way. And, and there's a lot of this um, uh, where, where the students will prop, them, prop themselves up. It's, it's what I would call spiritual posturing. Uh, they, they try to sound like or to preach like or to dress like one of the superstar preachers, and, and they would do that back in those days. Uh, there, there would be a lot of comparisons with each other using the foundation of what the other preachers looked like and sounded like as to what they did. People, I'm telling you what, guys, this is true. People would actually practice their preacher voices mimicking other preachers and say, how did I do? Did I sound, am I, is it, am I anointed of God? And it was actually, to me, it was a huge, big joke. 
uh, there would be these discussions on how they were going to, to minister, and it was going to be like, I'm going to do this and this and this as a pastor, kind of like that other one, kind of looking to these uh, spiritual giants at the time. Well, that's what atmosphere was like. It was like that constantly on campus with a bunch of guys studying for ministry. I, I don't know if the girls had discussions like that, but I know the guys definitely did. But, but we were in this powerful prayer service, uh, a powerful evening service one evening on campus, and it was, it was awesome. And, and God touched me in a very special way. My friend said, hey, we're all going to go out and go to Brahms, and we're going to get a bunch of hamburgers and stuff and milkshakes, and we're going to stuff ourselves, which is definitely the thing you want to do when you're a college student. And, and, uh, and they said, you know, you want to come along? And I tell you, I love doing stuff like that, but this is one time I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn in. And I, I remember I went back to my dorm room. It was a uh, third wing of Davis Hall in, at Southwestern University. And I, I went to my room, and, uh, and in my room, I, I just got onto the floor. I just remember laying face down, had the lights out, and I, I just began to weep. I began to sob. I just began to pray. I, I don't know what was stirring me at that moment, but it was the Holy Spirit. And then I felt God speak to me. And I want to read to you what I believe God spoke to me because it was so clear so clear because this was my as if moment. I felt God saying, do not look to your peers or to superstar preachers as your template. I have something different for you. You will do ministry as if, as if you are breaking new hard soil, new ground. It was like a holy dare. <laughs> it was like a dare to be different, and it would just flooded me, and, and it, it set me free from the bondage of all that stuff that we, we did as, as ministry students. And I want to tell you this, today, still today, that encounter that I have is what gets me up in the morning. It's what keeps me up late at night, and it's, it's my as-if moment, which then created my therefore See, because therefore, because of that as-if moment, therefore, I'm willing to sacrifice in my life. I don't have to look to other people for affirmation. I find my identity and my mission as a man, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband. I, I find it from the Word and from the Spirit. And one of the things I, I recognized as time went by is that the ministers, the ministry students who were always trying to mimic someone else, always trying to, uh, trying to, trying to posture and, and, and do that and look to people for affirmation and were really unwilling to sacrifice, they had very, very short-lived ministries. I would say about 90% of the people, of the guys that I went to college with that were studying to be ministers uh, are not in Christian ministry at all today, about 90%. And... Uh, it wasn't what they expected because the price was too much and the facade was too great. But based upon my as-if encounter, which I'm grateful to the Lord for, I began to develop some statements about my life. I began to develop some, a, a, a personal creed, some declarations, and I, I, I wanted my therefore to be written very well applicable to my life, regardless of how I feel at any given moment. In fact, I have a reminder set up on my phone and on my computer, I've had it for years, that reminds me, go back and review them, read over them, review them, go over them again and again and again. I just want to just share a few of them with you. This is, this, these, these are my therefores. 
My motto is this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God's spirit does not make me timid. God's spirit gives me power. God's spirit gives me love. God's spirit gives me a sound mind. I wrote out my calling. My calling is this. I am called by God to deliver his life, love, and power to anyone who will hear. I wrote out my vision. My vision is this, is I I bless people by adding hope, encouragement, joy, and purpose to their lives. My purpose is this, is I want my city to be a better place in the days to come, a better place to live, work, play, grow, and prepare for eternity. And I also wrote out this other statement, who I am, because I thought, well, who is Tim Woody? Well, that other stuff helps a little bit, but here's who I am. I am a man of God committed to blessing and helping others. I use my unique gifts to bring about love, joy, hope, and purpose into the lives of others. I am committed to a life of integrity, serving as a good husband, father, pastor, and leader. I strive to effectively lead by positively influencing other leaders for the advancement of God's kingdom. And then I wrote out my marriage vision. My marriage vision is very simple. It's this. It's loving and caring for one another until separated by death. 35 years of marriage. I'll say it's actually working. My family vision is this. It's challenging, inspiring, empowering, and loving my family to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. See, My therefores now define me. You get that? In fact, all that stuff is actually based in the scriptures. For me, that's a dare to be who God designed me to be. And the results of that, the results are to be, it's, it's found in the scripture, and I call it my cornerstone life scripture. It's the scripture that I long to hear God say, which I tell you this all the time. And it's Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, where God will say, I, I long for this day, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. That's what drives me. That's what gets me up in the morning. So what's your therefore? There are actually 1,220 therefores in Scripture. And I don't believe any of them are more significant than the very first word in Romans chapter 8. Now, when I was training to be a pastor, I I studied hermeneutics. And, And one of the basic principles of hermeneutics is whenever you see the word therefore or a word like that in in the scriptures, you have to look before and after the word in order to really understand what's being communicated because you can never make the scriptures mean what they never meant. And so Romans, the book of Romans, was a letter written to the church at Rome and Paul was communicating a message to them in that very corrupt and evil city. There's a church that was thriving and growing and impacting the culture. Uh, It's an amazing read. And there are 16 chapters. It's one of the longest letters, if not the longest letter that that Paul wrote, 16 chapters in the book of Romans. But there's there's this one word that ties everything together. 
And those of you who are English professors or, or English teachers, you just, you're loving this sermon already. But it's the term, therefore. It's the term, therefore. You see, therefore happens at the beginning of chapter 8, so that means everything in the first seven chapters is the cause. Then there's the word, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 8. So from 8 all the way to the very end, that is the effect. It is the consequence of everything that Paul had written up to that point. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Take a look at it. Take a look at it in your Bibles. Therefore, therefore, there is no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hold your place there. Now, that first therefore in Romans 8 is, again, the most significant clause that we find in the book of Romans. But it's not the only one. In fact, the word therefore is the Greek term that's translated as therefore, but it's ara, A-R-A in the Greek language. This, this letter was written originally in Greek, and that the word ara is found all over the place. And the first, and, and, it, and it, it's sometimes translated differently than the word therefore. Usually it's therefore. Sometimes it's saying so then or wherefore, but, but it's, it's the same term. And so the first 11 verses of Romans 8, again, and I hope you're reading Romans 8 and diving into it, it's, it's kind of like a chorus of what God has done for us. <laughs> but then the next few verses are kind of like the refrain. It's, it, it, it's, it's what God expects from us. So look at chapter 8, verse 12. Now, my version of the Bible here says, so then. But it's that same term, A-R-A, ara. Many of your Bibles will say, therefore, again. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under an obligation. An obligation. Say that with me, an obligation. All right. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, like, like that's just what we want or crave or desire. But if you are living in accord with the flesh, you're going to die. Strong words. <laughs> but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body or the flesh, and you will live. So th that key word there is obligation. Now, obligation is one of your favorite words, right? Isn't that just a favorite word? Yes, I'm obl obligated to do this. <laughs> no, usually we interpret uh, that term obligation as an, in a negative sense, in a negative like, but, but I, I, I don't want you to think of it as something you have to do. I learned this long ago. I had a pastor train me on this. He said, no, it's not what you have to do. It's what you get to do. I want you to see this obligation as something you get to do. You see, your greatest obligation doubles as your greatest opportunity if you're willing to take it. Of course, that begins with the surrender of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And another great example is marriage. Now, Rebecca would be here illustrating this with me today as we had originally planned, but, but it's all right. But, but, but the moment you say, I do, at the altar, you are obligating yourself. You're obligating yourself for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'll tell you, I have performed over 80 weddings. Yes, I have. Some have been grand and glorious, and others have been small and tiny and, and just in my office. But, but I'll tell you what, I have never seen anyone enter into this covenant the covenant of marriage with anything less than joyful obligation. Are you getting this? 
See, that's how the relationship with Christ was. So obligation, it means this. It means to be legally or morally bound. So when you enter into this covenant relationship with God, you tend to think of yourself as being legally and morally bound to God. And, that, and that's, actually, that's true. That's true. We are. But I want you to think of it as marriage because the Bible says that God gives us marriage as a picture of what our relationship with God is. So it's not just that we are morally and legally bound to God. God is morally and legally obligated, bound to you. And he's glad. See, the gospel demands this, that we give all of ourselves to God. But it also demands that God give all of himself to you. That's a deal nobody can beat. It's a, it's a covenant of blessing. It is joyful obligation. You know, there, there are ten ifs in Romans chapter number eight. And verse 31, I would have to say it is the ultimate. Verse 31, Romans 8 says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 10, I'd say, is kind of like the ultimate, as if it says, says this, if Christ is in you. I mean, it's beautiful. There, there's this tradition in professional sports uh, regarding uh, the, uh, the, the team when there's a fallen teammate and, and they're playing a game, and usually what they'll do is they'll put a patch with the, their initials, they'll, they'll sew it on their jersey, and, and the symbolism is powerful because the symbolism, it's basically an... Uh, it's basically has the element of an as if in it. That sees because the team is no longer playing for themselves. It's as if the other player is playing. They're playing for someone else. And in the same way, we wear this badge identifying us as believers in the name of Christ that we're no longer playing for ourselves anymore. We're playing for him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible says this, I have been crucified with Christ crucified with Christ. That's an ugly word. That means dead. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So, so understand this. We, we live for the applause of Christ with his nail-scarred hands. We live to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that means that we and scripture means that we are dead. Now, 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 let me put it this way. It's hard to get offended when you're dead. Christians, I think we should get that word out of our vocabulary 100%. I'm so offended. Oh, poor me. Oh, you know. And, and I'm grateful that this is a, this is a, a church where I very, very seldom have ever here. But just in case you're thinking about saying it, don't, all right? Because it's hard to get offended if you're dead. You know, it's hard to get angry or upset or, or commit sin if you're dead. It's hard to harbor bitterness or resentment or regret or remorse if you're dead, right? In fact, let's just be honest. We are dead men walking, powered by the Holy Spirit, full of him. And the day you give your life to Christ, something happens spiritually is that old man dies. In fact, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says this, I die daily. It is a daily choice to stay dead. Now, now, please understand, that's not morbid. There's huge, massive freedom in this because 
through that, we have an obligation. And the obligation is this. We are to live as if Jesus died yesterday. We are to live as if he rose from the grave today. We are to live as if he is coming tomorrow. That's how we live. Now, there's something that, that's called the, uh, it's called the Pygmalion effect. It has nothing to do with swine, but it's called the Pygmalion effect. And it was discovered or the, 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 the theory was brought up about, it was created about 100, 110 years ago. But, but there's an illustration of this, which I think illustrates this whole concept very, very well. Okay, about 60 years ago, uh, this Pygmalion effect was put to the test. There was a school district in, uh, in just, just south of San Francisco, and they pulled off this incredible experiment. Here's what they did. There were three teachers that were selected by the principal to pilot a very special program in the school. And they were told this, you are the best teachers we have. You're the best. And we want you to teach 90 of our highest IQ students in the school. And we're going to see how much they learned this year. So we're going to put the high IQ students with the best teachers, and we're going to let you go. We're just going to let you loose. (laughs) Well, by the end of the year, the students in those classes achieved 20 to 30% better than the rest of the entire school district. So after the results were in, at the very very end of the school year, the principal called in those three teachers, and he he told them this. He says, I have a confession to make. Now, please understand, this could never happen in today's world because everybody gets offended, except believers. But he said, I have a confession to make. He said, "Uh, you didn't have the high IQ students. They were just simple, run-of-the-mill, randomly selected students from the school. Now, this made the teachers feel even better. It's like, wow, look what we pulled off. That is amazing. And then the principal said, oh, there's one other thing I need to tell you. I have another confession. You're not the best teachers that we have. We simply put all the teachers' names in a hat, and we drew three. Yours are the ones that were drawn. So the obvious question is, if they were average students being taught by average teachers, how did they achieve such great above-average results? Well, the answer is the power of as if. You see, the mind doesn't know whether something is real or imagined. That's why sometimes you wake up from a dream, you're thinking, did that really happen? I don't know. You have to sort through it for just a little bit. But that's why this as if has huge potential. See, the students learned as if they had high IQs. The teachers taught as if they were the best of the best. Now, that principle carries over to our spiritual life, but of course, we have to anchor it in truth, not in some kind of an experiment. And the reality is this. Here's the reality. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Yet, the Scripture also says, I overwhelmingly conquer. Look at it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says, we overwhelmingly conquer. But the problem is this. Let's just be real. About half the time, now I know this may not apply to you, but I think it does. About half the time, I just feel like a total failure. <laughs> I'm a pastor, and I, I struggle with the same temptations, and I struggle with sin just as much as anyone. I'm a parent. I'm a husband, and, and I've done some things right, but I've also done a lot of things wrong. I love Rebecca like crazy, but I often don't feel like her knight in shining armor. I don't. <laughs> 
But at the same time, I overwhelmingly conquer. So which is it? And that's the big question that we have as believers quite often. So I'm going to just give you this little formula. Here it is. Take your cues from God's word and live as if you are who God says you are. Now, let me say it again. Take your cues from God's word and live as if you are who God says you are. Why? Because you actually are who God says you are. How do you do it? Well, this, this is where the rubber meets the road. You really need to be in the scriptures daily, regularly. You need to be in there just, just reading and wrestling with the scriptures and enjoying them and letting, letting God speak to you. But you need to read the scriptures as like a script. And while the realities of your circumstances and your day-to-day life, you might feel like your circumstances or your moods are off script, you still have to take your cues from God's word, and you have to live as if God says you are. Your feelings don't count. Your feelings don't count. I want to remind you of who you are. You're a child of God. You're the apple of his eye. You're a prince. You're a priest. You're an heir of God. You are an overcomer. And it's time that we live as if God's word is true. It's time we do that because it is. Now, now part of my creed, which I didn't read earlier, are these statements that I've written about myself that help, uh, that help me and keep my emotions from dominating me. Uh, I, I want to read another part of that because it fits a little better right here. Because this is a therefore statement. Therefore, I know I am chosen by God. I am a son of the king. I am one who walks in authority according to Joshua 1.3. I know I am a priest. I can walk into the presence of God at any time and talk to God face to face and bring my request to him. Revelation chapter 1 tells me this. I know I am holy. I am the property of God. I am an instrument of God's praise. I know I am called out of darkness by God, and I am called into his light. I get that in me regularly. So here's my challenge to you. Quit quit wallowing in the mud. You need to rise up and begin to act like who you really are. See, what's wonderful about Jesus is he didn't treat people as they were. You realize that? Jesus treated people as they could become. That's why the Bible says he was a friend of sinners, yet people, the religious people mocked him for that. No, but he lived this out. It, it, this is how I can become. And at various points in our lives, we need somebody to believe in us, don't we? We need somebody to believe in us more than we believe in ourselves. I hear it a lot in our society, just believe in yourself, just love yourself, and, and you know, that's, that's fine, that's okay, but that, that doesn't really take you very far at all. You need to believe in someone who believes in you more than you believe about yourself. And that's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus does. And I think we should do the same, because we're instruments of Jesus. And... Uh, I know it's not easy to see past people's problems, much less seeing past people's problems.
personalities, but that's actually what the prophets do. And I want to encourage you to begin to prophesy over others regarding who they are as God is prophesying over you, as I am prophesying over you who you are. Parents, if all you ever do is, is pick at your children regarding every little tiny thing they, they do wrong, what they're going to do is they're going to keep doing more of the same. And, and that's why children need more compliments than criticisms. So do spouses. <laughs> and that's what Jesus models for us. And he models this for us in 1 John 1, 17. It says grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace means this. Grace means this. I love you no matter what. Truth means this. I will be honest with you no matter what. And that's what we're to emulate as well. And when you love people that much, my friends, it changes everything. And it might even be there, therefore. So I want you to take this in. I want you to get unstuck from your if-onlys. I want you to stop trudging through your life with regret because you are dead to self and you are alive in Christ. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are like. God wants you to live your life marked with possibilities as if you are who he says you are, but you definitely are. And with this, this attitude, I mean, you can begin to embrace a faith mindset for your life and that will help you to look forward into the future with confidence because if God is for you, if God is for you, I'll say it, if God is for you, and he is, who can be against you? And you know what the answer to that is? No one. God is always on your side every day and in every way. So I challenge you today, just begin to live like it. Love people so much that the intersection of their life with your life will alter their destiny. I want you to be a person of grace and truth because Christ Jesus lives in you. Do what Jesus did live how Jesus lived. But, but, Pastor, no, 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 no. But I feel, no. But I think, but I did, wait, hold on. What do the scriptures say? Base ourselves on this. Now, you might be here today and say, that all sounds fine and good, but I'm not even into this Christian thing. I'm not, I'm not even a believer. Well, I'm, I want to pause for just a second right here, and I want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. And then we're going to pray together that God will solidify this in our hearts and our lives so that we will truly live different. But first of all, just with nobody looking around, please, respect this moment. I, I'm going to ask you to examine yourselves. Where are you scripturally? Where are you spiritually? Do you, are you in relationship with God? Are you there? Are you in relationship with Jesus? Have you, has your sin been forgiven? Because if not, now's the time and this is the moment to receive Christ. 
see your sin blotted out, pushed out, erased as if you've never, ever sinned. That's God's plan. That's God's destiny for you. I don't want you to have that. So if nobody looking around, if that's you this morning, you, you, you need to make things right with God before we go any further with our prayer in this service. Lift your hand for me so that I can connect my faith with you at the count of three. I'm going to count of three. Just lift your hand up. I'm going to connect my faith with you. We're going to pray together a prayer of salvation. Who needs to give their life to Jesus in this room? Lift your hand. One, two, three. Lift it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Put your hands down. As you pray, as you pray these words that I'm going to give you here in just a moment, I want you to pray them with faith and believe that your life is going to be different from this point forward, that your sin is going to be behind you 100%. Church, I want you to pray with those who are praying this, this prayer to encourage them as well. Come on, let's pray. Let's pray. Everyone praying with me, if you lifted your hand, mean these words from the bottom of your heart. Dear Jesus, I give my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Wash me in your precious blood. Make me a new creation. For today, I choose to give up my old life and to serve you for the rest of my life. Thank you for dying for me. I choose to live as if you died yesterday. I choose to live as if you rose from the dead today. I choose to live as if you're coming back tomorrow. My life is yours, Lord. Church, all across this room, will you just please stand with me because I want to pray over you. I want to pray over you. I want you to believe God for for supernatural intervention in your life. I want you to take what I've shared and I want you to embed it deep, deep into your heart and into your life. I want you to leave here different. I want you to leave here changed. I want you to leave here as a person who walks in grace and truth just like Jesus did because he lives in you. You are a habitation of God. God has moved in to you. God lives in you. Receive this prayer, church. Receive this prayer if you're watching online. God, I pray for every person in this room. I pray for every person who's watching online, even live, and those who are going to watch later this week and even months or years from now. I pray that there will be a a supernatural encounter with you and with your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that, that we will begin to live as if the word of God that's spoken about us is actually true because it is. God, I, I pray that we will we will stop leaning into our emotions. We'll stop leaning into our feelings. We'll stop, we'll stop uh, giving in to the circumstances that are around us, but instead rise up in faith and to believe what your word says about us so that we can truly be the conquerors that you've called us to be, God, that we will truly operate and function in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, just flood us. Fill us with your spirit, God. Let there just be more and more and more of your spirit that lives in us, giving us the 
power to, to overcome darkness, giving us the power to operate in the fruit of the Spirit, giving us this, thus the ability to be a person of grace and truth just like Jesus Christ. God, let us be different as we walk out of this place. Let it take effect on the job this week. Let it take effect in the schoolrooms this week, God. Let it take effect on, on the vacations and, and on the days off and, and, and during our recreation time, God. Let us realize and know and operate in the truth that we are loved and that we are called and we are going to live this thing out. And at the very end of our lives, you're going to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into all of this joy that I've planned for you since the foundation of the earth. And I pray these words in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And everybody said, amen, amen. Thank you for tuning in to the City Life Church podcast. I would love for you to attend one of our worship services right here in downtown Fort Worth. So if you'd like more information, simply go to citylifefw.org. God bless.